This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need to know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH. Today, I'm back with General Paediatric Consultant, Dr. Alexi Bouvier for the second part of our episode on bronchiolitis and viral induced wheeze. Once again, it covers topics under the respiratory section of the MRC PCH exam syllabus. If you missed us last week, Part one of the episode is still available to download on your usual podcast platform. We hope you enjoy this second part today. Moving on to the second part of this episode, we're going to be focusing on viral induced wheeze. So what are the main differences between viral wheeze and bronchiolitis? So the first one's in the name. Whilst in bronchiolitis, you often and generally we'll expect to get a mixed crackles, crepitation, and wheeze picture. You can get one or the other, but you will often get a mixed picture. In viral-induced wheeze, you get wheeze. You don't tend to get crepitations. And that's because of the age group where they're at and the pathophysiology being that they get bronchospasm rather than just inflammation, edema, and a discharge within the airways. And it's the slightly higher up airways. It's not quite your bronchioles. It tends to be more your slightly further up the food chain airways that you get it in. So that's the biggest difference. Then you've got the age groups. So you're generally looking at over one year old for viral induced wheeze. You wouldn't tend to call it that or see it much younger than that. And also the progression of it. Whilst bronchiolitis has a more gradual sort of continuation from day one of symptoms until they get sick, viral induced wheeze will often sort of trundle along, slowly worsening for the first few days, and then rapidly deteriorate. And you'll often get your nanny, they've had a cough, they've had a snuffles, they've had a fever, they've had a bit of work of breathing for a couple of days, and then today everything's just gone up. Their work of breathing's got worse, their cough, their wheeze, their breathlessness, everything has just got up that much faster. And that's a big difference between bronchiolitis and viral-induced wheeze. Then you're into what associations it's got with it as well. So you're slightly older and you've had time to develop potentially other forms of atopy. Your eczemas, your hay fevers, your food allergies, your animal allergies, your drug allergies, for example. And also it's a lot associated with family history of ATP and smoking, which bronchiolitis was as well, but very much again, smoking helps to lead on these episodes of wheeze and helps to make them worse. So yeah, everybody to stop smoking. And if you've got a child presenting with viral wheeze, what's your approach to assessment of that child? So it's exactly that. You you assess them and you try and stratify how unwell you think they are. And this is taken a lot from what the BTS and the sign guidelines have got for asthma with how it stratifies it into mild, moderate, severe, and life-threatening. 
and you use a similar approach for viral induced wheeze. And in fact, I direct people towards the CATS guideline for, for wheeze, which incorporates both asthma and viral induced wheeze because of how similar they are in presentation. And you'd look at their respiratory rate, at their saturations, both in air and in oxygen, their heart rate, their peak flow, uh, if they're old enough to do it, if they're well enough to do it, if they've previously done it before and you have something to compare to, or you use the sort of height and age predicted. You look at their talking, their ability to do sentences if they're old enough, or just their ability to feed. You look at their GCS, their fatigue, their confusion, their general behavior, and how bad those are. So how tachycardic a child is, how bad their saturations are, how fatigued they look, how bad their ability to feed or talk is, how much worse than usual or predicted their peak flow are is going to push you more and more through the moderate to the severe to the life-threatening. Another part of that is within the history. The ones I worry about most would be the ones that have previously had bad exacerbations of viral injuries or bad episodes, the ones that have required IVs every time, the ones that get admitted every time, the ones that have been to ITU several times with their wheeze despite all the IVs that we can give them. And the other bit of the history would be how long they've been unwell for and what's been happening at home. So a lot of children get viral induced wheeze several times. And a lot of parents have subutamol at home. They've been shown how to use it, but then they slightly forget how to use it. And they end up giving it very frequently for an extended period of time. And if you've got a child rocking up in A&E who's been having six to 10 puffs of subutamol every hour or two for the last 12 hours, that child is not in a good place because clearly they've not been responding appropriately to what we would hope the medicine does. And if they've still continued to get worse, despite being perhaps mitigated through with all that salbutamol, I'm worried that they are towards where they're going to start decompensating on me. So that's how I'd assess those children. And then how do you manage these children? Is it similar to bronchiolitis in that it's supportive or are there more specific therapies that you would give in this case? You treat viral induced wheeze. And that is because of the difference in the pathophysiology. These children are older. They have the receptors on which salbutamol and the other bronchodilators will work. And it's bronchospasm that is their main problem. So effectively, you treat them like an asthmatic, even if they're 18 months, two years, three years old, not quite in what we would call asthmatic age territory yet, for example, you give them salbutamol. You give them salbutamol, you give them some more salbutamol, and you give them some more salbutamol. How much you give them and how frequently is dependent on how they respond to it. So generally you will give what we call burst and stretch. And burst is generally three loads of salbutamol, six to 10 puffs, depending on their age, back to back. Generally that takes about 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes. So about half an hour, you've given them three loads of salbutamol. And then you see how much improvement that has done. Some places will also give Atrovent or ibuprofen bromide in with that. So they might give it in one of the puffs. They might give it in all three of the sets. You can also give magnesium sulfate as part of a nebulizer of burst. That's not as common yet across different centers. That will depend on where you work, but you give the burst of salbutamol and see how much response that's had. If they have had a good response and what you would want to see 
is a reduction in the wheeze whilst still maintaining or even improving air entry and air movement, and hopefully a reduction in their work of breathing, then hopefully you can try and stretch. And by that, it's about going from needing it every one hour, because whilst it works, it only lasts an hour and then they start going backwards, to being able to last two hours. And so you stretch the interval to giving it every two. And then when you look at them at two hours, if they don't need it, you stretch them to three. And then when you look at them at three hours, you stretch them to four. But if they need it at two, you give it at two, and then you stretch as and when. And sometimes, unfortunately, they go a little bit backwards as well, and they go from needing it every three to needing it every two. So you have to keep reassessing them even when you think that they're getting better. And just before moving on with the initial bit of salbutamol treatment, it's really important to remember spaces. Most children should be given spaces, should be having their salbutamol as puffs, not as nebulizer. Unless their air entry is terrible and you've got a really quiet chest, you really can't hear too much moving, then the spacer and the inhaler through it will be able to give you the appropriate bioavailability or delivery of the medication to work even if they have a bit of oxygen requirements, because you can put the mask for the spacer over, say, nasal cannula giving you two liters. But if they've got terrible air entry, or they have got a good going higher than two liters oxygen requirement, then you would lean towards giving a nebulizer. And with experience, you'll also learn to recognize how unwell a child looks and that child clearly looking unwell and probably going down the IV route anyway, let's get cracking and get everything into them as fast as possible, especially if you're thinking of adding in the Atrovent, especially if you're thinking of adding in the magnesium. Previously, when we were talking about bronchiolitis, you mentioned accepting a lower target oxygen saturation of kind of 90 or potentially 92% if it was a high risk child. Would that be the same here or would you be targeting higher oxygen saturations? 94 plus. It's only really in that bronchiolitis cohort that we accept that lower saturations target. But outside of that, your pneumonias, your viral induced wheezy, your asthmas, you want to have a good 94, 95 plus saturation target and give as much oxygen as necessary to get to that point. And what about steroids? What would be the indication for starting steroid therapy? So this is one where over the years and moving from rotation to rotation as we do, we have to try and remember to not give too many steroids. Steroids help not in the immediate five minutes, they help over the next sort of few hours and few days. And they're really best given to the older children, the more atopic children, so have a baseline sort of hyperreactivity to triggers anyway, the more recurrent episodes of viral induced squeeze, and the ones that you think are actually just turning into asthma. So when you start to hit sort of four, five years old, and they're having regular episodes, it's really important to ask about interval symptoms, your exercise, your cold weather, your nighttime, for example. The more you think that they're moving out of pure viral induced wheeze, and by that I mean they get a cold, they get wheezy, they get better, they get a cold, they get wheezy, they get better, that's viral induced wheeze. But if even outside of those carousal, cold flu type symptom, acute cough, chest infection things, 
even outside of those, there's still an undercurrent of cough and breathing and wheezing. That's more and more likely to be asthma. And that's where you start to think about giving your steroids. But we shouldn't be throwing steroids at every single wheezy toddler. If we are giving steroids, a lot of places are now moving away from prednisolone, which was your classical three days like, like with the asthmatics, to a stat dose of dexamethasone because it's found to be better tolerated. So you don't end up wasting as much and it can be given as one dose rather than three days. So it's a win-win, generally speaking. And at what point are you happy discharging a child with viral induced wheeze and how would you do this safely? What advice would you give? So I would want a child with viral induced wheeze to be able to last four hours in between subutamols without a massively increased work of breathing by the time he gets to four hours or without a massively worse wheeze and definitely with normal saturations. Now, if a child starts to get wheezy and work a bit hard and cough a bit at four hours, that's probably okay, but you'll have to base that on how they look in front of you, how confident the parents are, have they done this before, how confident you are that the parents have taken on board the safety netting and would bring them back. Because we've got to remember, it can be really inconvenient for parents to have to come back having thought that they've been treated and actually they have to come back 12 hours later because it's not quite there yet. And sometimes with experience, you may start to send children home at three hours if you think that they will get to four and then be able to maintain four hours in between inhalers at home. But really, it's four hours between effective subutamol treatments without worsening symptoms, with minimally increased work of breathing and normal saturations. That's what I'd be looking for to go home. And when you're discharging them home, what follow-up advice would you give? So we would want them to have a wheeze review within 48 hours or so, definitely within 72, ideally with their GP. That, unfortunately, is becoming more and more difficult to always have, but it's what we would be pushing for. And hopefully GP practices might have an asthma nurse or a practice nurse that could do that, even if the doctor wasn't available. And that's essentially to make sure that they've tolerated the weaning. Because when you send them home on four hourly subutamol, you want them to eventually come off four hourly subutamol. And how you do that is over the next 24, 48, 72 hours, you plan on giving them fewer puffs, with bigger gaps in between. So less salbutamol, less frequently, if tolerated. So you might say for 24 hours, you give 10 puffs four hourly. And then for 24 hours, you give eight puffs six hourly. And different places will have different ways of writing out the safety plans. There's no one specific number and hours. Some places just reduce the amount of puffs. Some places just reduce the frequency. Some places reduce both. The idea is you're giving less salbutamol over the next couple of days. And if a child is tolerating that, that's showing you that their body is getting better and able to tolerate the reduction in medicine. And that's the point at which we would be wanting to see the GP to make sure that has happened. But if whilst you're weaning, they go backwards. If on going from four hourly to six hourly salbutamol, you notice they're not making it to six, they're only making it to four hours, they clearly need to go back on to four hourly salbutamol. And if whilst you're weaning, they go 
past four hours and back into three hours, definitely if they hit needing it every two, then you need to be coming back. As annoying and as frustrating and as inconvenient as that might be for families, if they're going backwards with their treatments, we would want them to come back. And that's because we know that wheezes can get very sick again, even after the initial presentation and management. And what about the children that don't respond to that initial management, the burst and stretch regime with salbutamol? What would be the next step up for those children? So then you're thinking about what other bronchodilators you've got. The one that's very commonly used over the last few years is IV magnesium sulfate as your next line. And in my experience, that works really well and can help put the brakes on the worsening situation and can also help avoid the need to escalate to bronchodilator infusions like salbutamol or aminophilin, both of which would need to start with a bolus before putting them on an infusion, but both of which can have nasty side effects. The IV salbutamol, too much salbutamol, you get toxicity, you get tachycardic, you get jittery, you get lactic acidosis, and you may even see this through burst and nebulizers, especially if they've had lots and lots of salbutamol at home before coming in. But aminophilin, you know that it can affect the heart. You need to have them in cardiac monitoring in an HDU part of your ward, which can be difficult on a DGH, for example, to do. But both of those IV medicines as infusions, you would start at a base level and then aim to titrate it down as safely tolerated once they're stable titrate, make sure they still tolerate, aim to stop, make sure they still tolerate whilst stretching out the inhaled or nebulized form of salbutamol as well. But magnesium sulfate can be a really good stat dose given, and in my experience can really help get you through that initial one hourly period of the inhalers or nebulizers through to stable two hourly and then eventually three hourly plus. And that's important because you really don't want these children to be on one hourly salbutamol nebulizers or inhalers for an extended period of time. It just means they're not getting better. And eventually you've got to go, right, they're not getting better. Let's knock it on the head, give them some IV something and able to stretch them out. And IV magnesium sulfate's turning out to be a really useful one for that. If they are really unwell, they often get IV steroids, but actually as long as they're not vomiting, and as long as their breathing's not so bad, if they can swallow their oral steroids, that does the trick. Otherwise, you might put them on IV hydrocortisone regularly for a few days. And just like with bronchiolitis, essentially just like with any breathing condition, if their work of breathing is getting so bad and their gas exchange is getting so bad and their oxygenation is getting so bad, you may need to put in place respiratory support such as Octoflow, such as CPAP, such as intubation, if necessary, if the gases, if the oxygen requirements, and if the fatigue and confusion, i.e. the GCS part of it, continues to get worse. And obviously then you'd be discussing with your CATS colleagues and with your ITU colleagues, depending on where you work, as to how you get this child moved safely. And you'd be doing a chest x-ray when you intubate them to make sure there's nothing else going on. And what is the role of non-invasive ventilation for viral induced wheeze? It's similar to bronchiolitis. It's supportive. Sometimes these children need that support to help them get through the worst of the bronchospasm period, but the Optiflow or CPAP is not treating the spasm. 
that remains the bronchodilators, your salbutamol, your IV magnesium sulfate, your aminophilin, your atrovents, or your IV salbutamol. That's what's treating. The non-invasive is supporting through that period of time. And similarly, the oxygen is not treating bronchospasm. The oxygen is a side effect of the bronchospasm because of it redu reducing the amount of air getting to your alveoli and being able to be effectively gas exchanged. So you're supporting them with the oxygen, you're supporting them with a non-invasive whilst you treat the bronchospasm with bronchodilators. And we've talked a bit about the relationship between viral wheeze and asthma already. Are you more likely to go on to develop asthma if you've suffered from episodes of viral-induced wheeze as a young child? Not per se. You can have recurrent episodes of viral-induced wheeze, just like you can get recurrent viral infections of any kind, especially in that preschool, nursery, early school age, the more children you see, the more bugs you catch. It's part of making friends and wintertime especially. But the more episodes you have, the more frequently, the more interval symptoms you start to have, the more A to P is within your personal past medical history or your family's past medical history, asthma, eczema, hay fever, food allergies, medicine allergies, pet allergies, the more pets and smoking are at home, etc. Those are the ones that start to look more and more like asthma and are more likely to develop asthma. Eventually, once you get to a certain age, if you're still having regular wheezy episodes, you're probably not having good periods of normality in between, and you're probably moving into asthmas and you should be going through your GP to get assessed as per the NICE guidelines and then referred on through as appropriate for that. Moving on to our quick fire questions. Firstly, are there any classic exam questions that tend to come up about bronchiolitis and viral wheeze? So this would probably be more in the theory part. You could have a wheezy one-year-old, wheezy 13-month-old and being able to differentiate between the two based on the history and the examination based on how quickly they've got unwell, for example, and also what response or lack of response they have to particular medicines like bronchodilators. There might be a question of how to manage and escalate a viral wheeze and how to manage and escalate a bronchiolitis with a trick being that it's supportive management and you don't give them all the medicines and all the tests in the world. So those are probably the two main ways that question is going to go. Secondly, are there any useful resources that you'd recommend to listeners about the subjects? Yep. So as I think I mentioned in this viral induced wheeze part of the talk, the CATS guideline for wheeze and asthma is very good, as are the BTS British Thoracic Society guidelines, the SIGN guidelines for asthma from up in Scotland, and the CATS have also got a bronchiolitis guideline. Your local trust will have a bronchiolitis guideline. It will have a asthma guideline, and it should most likely have a initiation of basic NIV Optiflow CPAP guideline as well. So have a look at those, get familiar with what kit your ward has, what your nurses know how to use. There's no point you asking them to use Optiflow if all they have is CPAP and vice versa. And then finally, the two bits that we're probably not as good at as a whole are the safety plans and weaning regimes, which every wheezy child should have on going home at any age, especially when you're into the viral wheeze and into asthmas. Every attendance admission, they should have a safety plan 
of going home, knowing that if I get these symptoms, I give these medicines. If that helps, I do this. If it doesn't help, I do this. If it gets to this point, I have to call 999 or go to A&E. Everybody should have those. And the other thing that we're probably not so good at is inhalers. We think we all know how an inhaler works and how to show that an inhaler works. We would be mistaken. So speak to your A&E senior nurses, speak to your respiratory CNSs, get them to show you how to use an inhaler, get them to show you how to teach the use of an inhaler. FYI, it can be a mini kex, so you can get something out of it. And that is something that parents need to be probably reminded of, even the ones that use it regularly. And so if we know how to show it, if we know how to see that they are doing it properly and be able to assess that, we can use that brief intervention of time to make sure that they're going home safely and doing the right things properly. And finally, what are your three takeaway learning points? So I have cheated and put four, but that is only because both of them are generally viral. Most don't need investigations or antibiotics, whether it's bronchiolitis or viral wheeze. What changes is the treatment? Bronchiolitis is supportive management, whereas viral wheeze is mainly focused on bronchodilators for bronchospasm. Remember apneas in young infants with suspected bronchiolitis. We can forget about those sometimes. And across both, reassess to review their response and to escalate or wean as necessary. And those are the key learning points from these. That's a really fantastic summary of both bronchiolitis and viral wheeze. So thank you very much for coming on and talking to me today. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRC-PCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.